wanted to pick up a little bit from what Kitty Sire was saying last night, um, because in many ways it's uh, moving into the realm of Kuan Yin is moving into the realm of the, the mystical and the mysterious, and uh, it's something of a shift from perhaps a more rational mode of approaching practice. It's also opening the area of devotion, uh, of opening to this greater sense of relationship to to the mystery or that aspect of our being that is not necessarily so discernible to us, the archetypal realm of the divine energies, uh, but is not necessarily apart from us. And there's different ways that these are talked about in the historical context, in the Buddhist historical context, in the Mahayana school. Kuan Yin appears in many different sutras, different ways, but the one that she's most, or he, appears in most famously is the Satthatthama uh, Pandurika Sutra, which is the, the, the sutra of the... Uh, Law, wondrous law of the, the lotus, the lotus of the wondrous law, the, or the lotus sutra, which appeared about the first century. Um, and it's not very clear uh, who actually recorded it, but it seems one of the, the later sutras, according to Mahayana, that the Buddha gave on Vulture Peak, which is a, a sutra where he bestows upon his disciples the the notion that uh, all beings, that they will emerge at some point into full awakening, that it's a, our truer destiny. And in that sutra there's a whole chapter on Kuan Yin. And uh, at that point in that chapter, one of the disciples comes and asks, you know, who is this Kuan Yin being? And so here in this sutra we get to meet Kuan Yin and then Kuan Yin um, is talked about in terms of both her ability or his ability to to appear in all sorts of different forms according to what is most needed to evoke compassion or to rescue living beings from suffering and also it uh, talks about her vows certain vows that she makes and uh, according to this sutra and this teaching, Kuan Yin and the Buddha were fellow practitioners eons ago. So this is in the realm of the great cosmology of Buddhism that eons ago that they, like ourselves, were practicing together. And all the practitioners were making different vows. And Kuan Yin's vow was, though Kuan Yin became a Buddha, an enlightened one, there was some kind of affinity to this realm, sometimes called the Saha realm in the Mahayana, which means the realm that's difficult to be in, or the dusty realm, difficult realm. It was made an affinity with this realm to stay close and to, to be around for those that wish to call on her powers, uh, powers of compassion, powers to alleviate suffering. And so it's sort of talking about vast expanses of time and a sort of energy that we might see perhaps in our more modern context in an archetypal way. Um, Mahayana countries, often they see Kuan Yin in a very literal way, the great being. Um, 
for many of us we, we see it perhaps more in a mythical archetypal energy of the universe or just in a more mysterious way that which, which can evoke compassion in us and can alleviate suffering and so the practices around Kuan Yin are very much holding the name of Kuan Yin uh, as a method and opening oneself, uh, inviting the mystery, inviting that compassionate element to work in our lives, bring about what's ever needed for our transformation. As Kuan Yin moves through historical and cultural context, or Avrakiteshwara, which is the Sanskrit name, um, it has the same meaning. Kuan Yin is just the Chinese of Avrakiteshwara, the one that regards Shvara, the sounds of the world, um, she appears, or he appears, in, in different cultures, in Tibet with Chenrezig, in uh, Korea and Japan with Kualom, Kuan Yin in China. I've looked at Tetra in the original Sanskrit, and uh, has, in, maybe has a different, slightly different form or um, stories or manifestation, but really it's all pointing back to the energy of compassion, the, an aspect of the enlightened mind. And so because of the, the association with mercy and compassion, there's often the note the Kuan Yin is held very dearly uh, in, in uh, Mahayana cultures, Buddhist cultures. Not only in Mahayana, you'll find Kuan Yin appearing in Thailand and in Burma, Kuan Yin temples. But it's not so common to find in Vipassana retreats uh, in the West. We tend to approach our Buddhism in, you know, more through the doorway of meditation and uh, perhaps in a more rational scientific approach to the meditative practice. And it's often historically the case that the Kuan Yin dharmas or the Pure Land schools emerge within a culture often uh, later after the other the sutras or the meditation or the Chan practices have been more established. But as uh, Kili Sara mentioned last night, it's, uh, we've always found it uh, beginning to open. For me it's a bit of a mystery, I'm not quite sure really what Kuan Yin is about. <laughs> but it felt like it um, addressed a need for me to have a more sort of devotional, mystical relationship to the larger sense of the context, the more faster sense of the context within which to practice. And so we've uh, got introduced to some of these practices through <coughs> in a, when we were in the monastery and had a, a relationship with a Chinese monastery. And sometimes their monks and, <coughs> monks and nuns would visit or their master, Master Hua, Master Xunhua, would visit and teach and practice some of these practices. And uh, we would go over there, Kisa and I went over to, uh, to their monastery to continue uh, learning a little bit more about these practices. I have to read you a little bit from the Lotus Sutra, from the vows of Avalokiteshvara. From the Lotus Sutra, the Buddha said, Good person, Suppose there are innumerable hundreds, thousands, ten thousands, millions of living beings who are undergoing various trials and suffering. 
If they hear this Bodhisattva, listener of the world sounds, and single-mindedly call her name or his name, then they will perceive the sound of their own voices and they will all gain deliverance from their trial. If someone holding fast in the name of the Bodhisattva should enter a great fire, a fire could not burn them. If they were washed away by a great flood and called upon her name, she would they would immediately find themselves in a shallow place. Suppose there are a hundred thousand, ten thousand, a million living beings seeking for gold, silver, lapis lazuli, seashell, agate, coral, amber, pearls and other treasures and they set upon a great sea. And suppose a fierce wind should blow their ship off course and it drifted to the land of the Rakasha demons. If among those people there is even just one who calls the name of the Bodhisattva, Kuan Yin, then all those people will be delivered from the troubles with the Rakasha, Rakasha demons. If a person faces imminent threat of attack, should call on the name of the Bodhisattva Kuan Yin, then the swords and staves wielded by his attackers would instantly shatter into so many pieces. And then it goes on all through all different kinds of trials and tribulations to, the, to a more subtle area of one who is beset by lusts and cravings, by desires, by ignorance, by wrath and ire, holding the name of Kuan Yin, they can dissolve these obstructions. Inexhaustible is the, is the power and merits of Kuan Yin Bodhisattva, possesses great authority and supernatural power, and has, as I have described, can, can confer many benefits. For this reason, living beings should constantly keep the thought of her in mind. So there, in a way, you, you have this leap really into, into the realm of myth and faith but exploring what is it to hold a mantra or a name not just as a way of steadying the mind but to invoke and to open to the possibility of a, a, a blessing energy within the universe uh, there's another story to read about Kuan Yin from Tibet which is quite there's so many different stories that appear um, and a lot of them have this sort of salvationary kind of feel to them or sometimes quite a, a lesson, something that appears that teaches one in a very powerful way. This one is the beginnings of Avalokiteshvara, Kuan Yin, as he appears in Tibet. Of course, Kuan Yin, Avalokiteshvara can take male or female form. So sometimes you see images of Kuan Yin in a feminine form, like these little statues we have here on the shrine often quite benevolent, um, soft, gentle, merciful, and sometimes in more wrathful forms, more androgynous, androgynous looking, I'm not quite sure whether male or female, with, with a thousand hands and eyes, and, and with some of the hands and eyes quite powerful weapons almost to cut through delusion and um, to tie up obstructions, and then more softer images of, of vases of nectar to soothe beings, willow branches to sprinkle nectar. Um, so you get these different ways that Kuan Yin can be imaged. According to an old Tibetan tradition, the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara has a special relation with the people of Tibet. Bodhisattva is a warrior or a hero of enlightenment. 
a being who is on the path to Buddhahood. But in a sense, Avalokiteshvara is even more than a Buddha. After maintaining Buddhahood, he voluntarily returned to the way of the Bodhisattva in order to lead all beings to Buddhahood. Thus, Avalokiteshvara is considered a manifestation of the selfless, unconditional compassion of the Buddha. The form of Avalokiteshvara, favoured by the Tibetans, has a thousand arms and a thousand eyes in his open palms and eleven heads. He is said to have acquired these many arms and heads as a result of his frustrations with the Tibetans. The story begins when Avalokiteshvara was dwelling in Sukhawati, the pure land of the Amita Buddha, where everything was wonderfully peaceful. Feeling quite confident and expansive, Avalokiteshvara decided to go down to Tibet and help help it become a civilized, non-violent nation. He vowed to Amitabha, if I ever get discouraged down there working with those barbaric Tibetans, may my body be shattered into a thousand pieces. Then he descended, and for several lifetimes he meditated in the mountains upon boundless compassion, continually emanating waves of love. In those days, the Tibetans were powerful warriors who had conquered much of Central Asia. They also loved to have a good time and eat great quantities of yak meat. In the traditional language of Buddhism, they were difficult to tame. After many lifetimes, Avalokiteshvara began to be aware that such deeply ingrained tendencies are not easily pacified. Just emanating waves of love did not seem to be doing the trick. In a moment when Avalokiteshvara was not guarding his mind, he thought, these Tibetans are insatiable. No matter how peaceful and loving I am, it has no effect. He became a bit discouraged and wept, they say, and two tears from which a goddess appeared, one white and one green, the two forms of Tara. The two goddesses said, stop weeping, we'll help you, please calm yourself. And their words indeed calmed him down for a lifetime or two. (laughs) At last, however, he became truly discouraged, and in that moment his body was instantly shattered into bits. Then one of the fragments of the Bodhisattva cried out in despair to Amitabha Buddha for help. Amitabha came down to the place where Avalokiteshvara's pieces were strewn upon the mountain. In typical guru fashion, he looked down at the broken Bodhisattva and said, What's your problem? (laughs) Who ever told you to take such an ambitious vow? What have you done to yourself? You know, you should always be careful about what you wish for because, you know, whatever it is, sooner or later you will get it. Then Amitabha blessed the Bodhisattva and the thousand pieces became an imposing figure with a thousand arms, a thousand eyes and eleven heads. Kind of puts our retreat in perspective, doesn't it? I wanted to tell you... the story, Kirisara finished the talk last night talking about our experience in South Africa, which is quite mysterious to me. I don't quite know how to understand it, but I wanted to share the story. Um, we had, this was exactly three years ago, around this time actually, we had been doing a three-month retreat. We decided to take three months out in our small mountain hermitage. And there were five of us, uh, we entered a three-month retreat 
And um, every day we, we were doing these mantras and we did quite a lot around um, Amitabha and Kuan Yin as well as the classical Vipassana practices as well as some Chan or Zen type practices. And so it was quite an, in, an intensive space and it was the season, what they call the, the, the dry season. The rains had dried up and in South Africa at that particular time from about April till mid-September, late September, it gets very, very dry. And so one of the big dangers is the fires that can break out. It's quite a scary time of year because of the enormous fires that can sweep across the grasslands. Being in the Drakensberg Mountains, some of our, our land is in grassland. And the land of the Hermitage as well as it, <coughs> small ravines with some um, indigenous woods, but mainly it's a, it's a grassland with some overgrown areas. You know, some of the farms near us have gum trees, pine trees that are really not indigenous to the area, but have, have grown up. So we were towards the near the end of this retreat, and we had just done classically in a Chinese system, Chinese monastery. If you do a, a week of Zen or Chan. Uh, using the who practice, inquiry practice, which we've used a little bit on this retreat, then you, you, you proceed that with a week of Kuan Yin devotion. They go together. It's a sort of a, a week of devotion and chanting, bowing, holding Kuan Yin's name, <coughs> and then go straight into a, a week of Zen, of Chan, of inquiring who's doing all this anyway, and, and returning it all back to the source. So we were just finishing quite a rigorous week of chant um, when the wind started to to blow up. And of course, being the dry season, we get these enormous winds, mountain winds called berg winds, that, that start to come at that time of year. And we had an early morning sitting one morning at 4 o'clock, 4.30, and uh, we had this enormous wind. It was probably at least 100 miles an hour, probably more, and sort of a screeching sound to the wind. And that morning, Kilisaro, uh, we just finished this session, and he was reading through the lineage of the um, Zen practitioners, the Zen patriarchs, right back to the Buddha and Bodhidharma and um, Kashyapa, Mahakashyapa, and the whole lineage right through to the um, Master Shu Yun, whose teachings we were following, we were reading. And at that point we heard this crash. And we didn't, we, it was all very crash in the background. We were sitting in our small shrine room, and we carried on, finished the sitting, and walked out of the, we had a small thatch, we have a small thatched shrine room. So they call it a rondava in Africa. It's a round building with, a, with thatch on it. And the five of us uh, walked out, and because it was so incredibly windy, the, the hurricane wind, we had our heads down and walking across um, to the hut, which was our kitchen. At that point, we hadn't many buildings. We were living out of huts, and we just had this shrine we built. And we were having our porridge and sort of looking a bit nervously out the window at the trees bending right over and branches snapping. And, and one of the retreatants came in and said, Kisara, your hut's blown away. Mm-hmm. And um, we all sort of looked at him stunned and he said, well, you better come pick up the pieces. So we walked out and uh, 
Kitty Saro had been practicing in this kuti, which weighed a ton. I don't know how much it weighed because we had to get a, a pickup truck to carry it from the from the um, guy that made it to to the hermitage. It was a ton weight, which is pretty heavy. And the wind had been so it was so powerful, it had just picked it up like a matchbox and just thrown it 20 meters and smashed, completely smashed. And um, we went over there thinking, yeah, wow, <laughs> we start picking this up with things flying around, things were just all over the place. And thinking you know, how great it was that Kitty Side wasn't in the hut at that particular point. <laughs> and um, it would have been pretty serious. And one, he had a, an, an, quite a heavy, shrine table with this very, very delicate Kuan Yin on it and the table had just turned over and he was concerned about this Kuan Yin because a, a very dear friend of his who had since died had given it to him and we found the Kuan Yin under the table with everything else smashed and it was, it was still in one piece which was quite amazing so we picked that up and took it to our house and then I noticed that um, he had on, still on the wall, which was now on the floor, he'd had two pictures, one of Mother Mary and one of Kuan Yin, which were his favorite pictures, little plastic pictures. So I, they were still blue tacked on, on this wall piece, which was sort of on the floor. So I, I took off the pictures thinking, well, I know he really, he really likes these pictures, he really values these pictures, and carried them up. I thought, before I do anything, I'm going to carry these two pictures and put them safely in the drawer. So when all this mess is finished, we can at least we can at least have his pictures. So I put them both in the drawer and shut the drawer, and then we went about clearing, clearing up. And then the, the night after that, that was on the night of 16th of July. And then uh, for the nights after that, on the 18th, we had one of our retreats went up into the mountains to practice. We had caves in the back of the mountain. She went up there to practice. Uh, and it was, and it, the wind had died down. It turned out to be quite a beautiful day, and we thought, oh, it's not going to be a problem. You know, the wind has gone. But that night, we went out and we uh, we saw it was a full moon, and we saw these huge rings around the moon, beautiful turquoise green rings, um, which was interesting because later we saw a piece written in one of the sutras, the Shrangama Sutra, a commentary by Master Hua, where he talked about how rings around the moon is actually an inauspicious sign and it means wind. So, yeah. So the wind began again and we also noticed, at night we were looking at the moon, we also noticed down deep in the valley beyond us there was this red glow of a fire. So we rang up, and that was not a good sign with wind, so we rang up the um, ranger and uh, said, you know, what's happening? And the ranger said, no, no, it's okay, they've got the fire under control. So, okay, so we went to bed and this wind started up and it, it got even more powerful than the one that tipped over Kitty Sarah's heart. And at this point, <coughs> we had noticed also, Kitty Sarah had said to me, you know, um, we've kind of cleared up the pieces of his heart and he said, where's my uh, pictures? Have you seen my pictures? I said, no, I put them both I put them both in that drawer. Um, and so we went and he opened the drawer and there was a picture of Mother Mary, but the Kuan Yin had disappeared. And I said, no, no, I definitely put them there and she had gone. 
Anyway, so that had happened. But then, meanwhile, this wind was picking up, and the next day we woke up to this. Well, actually, we couldn't really sleep. It was like all hell was broken loose. This wind had picked up to about 120 miles an hour, and it was snapping trees, and it was lifting roofs. And our friend was up the mountain, and uh, she was in a bad state trying to get down. It was so powerful, it was just picking her up and throwing her. And uh, on the way down, she damaged her knee. And meanwhile, we were trying to tie down roofs and um, get things as tied down as we could. And then mid-morning we, we saw this fire that they had supposedly got under control beginning to come up our valley and um, we looked out across across into the valley and we saw it go it jumped over the, the riverbed and then it, it went into a, one of these uh, exotic pine forests uh, gum forests and, and a whole lot just took off like tinder and I looked at all this and I thought well we've probably got about 10 minutes to get out of here before this comes up to our place. So we, we had 10 minutes to just pack a few things, interesting moments. <laughs> and uh, meanwhile, Kisaro and the two guys on the retreat were pretty sure that they could fend off the fire. So they started doing mantras <laughs> by, the, <laughs> by the shrine room, being protected. And meanwhile, I was kind of freaking out and threw our beloved dog in the car and a few other bits and went down and we had a Zulu woman living at our place and called Angel and she was tipping out our whole house and we had this little tiny car and filling it up with all, all her stuff and so I had this going on with the guys doing mantras the fire getting closer and, uh, and one of her cousins, her nephews young Zulu guy was staying with us and I said to him, Alex, I said, go up and tell the guys to, to get in South Africa called pickup trucks, backies. I said, get, tell them to get in the backie. You know, we've got to get out of here. But meanwhile, the fire had leapt over the road and was climbing up the hill opposite us at a furious pace and just started as a river, like a river coming towards the hermitage. And uh, we had 200 meter fire breaks which proved to be useless. And so, because the English it was difficult for Alex, he went running up the hill and he got a bucket. He thought I said, get a bucket, rather than get in the bucky. So he came running down this bucket. I had this little Monty Python moment. whole home was about to burn down and it suddenly was quite sort of hysterically funny. Saying, Madam, you wanted a bucket. I said, no, no, let's just get in the car and get out of here. And by this time, the guys had been doing the mantras and like furious and they said there was a moment when the whole thing died down, the wind died down and they thought, oh, we've done it and as soon as you thought that, the whole thing started again so they had to bail out and they jumped in the bucky and we, we drove off a few bits and pieces and um, meanwhile the fire jumped our fire brakes and went through the hermitage and I was sitting on the road thinking that's it, finished, the whole story six years of work, gone, gone in a few minutes. Um, and the fire had been so powerful that it was just leaping and igniting anything in its way. Logs, we had a lot of dry logs on the land and it was just igniting all over the place. Um, so we sat <coughs> out of reach of the fire for a few hours and there was chaos everywhere, people driving and trying to get their livestock out and trees snapping and burning and the road was full of burning trees 
and eventually when it kind of passed through and eventually it stopped it did actually stop the wind died just before it got to the town the town was just about to evacuate and it just stopped and uh, before just before it hit the town and we drove back and I was expecting to see everything gone especially the thatched building and we got up there and um, everything was in one piece everything the fire had just gone round each of the buildings except for the the hut which was on the ground which got burnt up they had just gone round each of the buildings and even the fat shrine room which had logs right next to it the, the fire had just ignited these logs a few meters and they were burning furiously but the thatch was completely unharmed and inside the shrine room we had this big Kuan Yin statue, wooden one and one of our retreatants ran in because he was sure that Kuan Yin's hand would have been burnt where she'd put the fire out around her <laughs> 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 he couldn't believe it why this had happened um, and so we, were, we spent the, the night just uh, putting out fires around us and trying to protect the building um, and then another um, strange thing happened that the fire had called a, a wood pile because it was winter we had a wood pile up, up outside of the wooden building and a young man had come up a young Zulu man who had always been very sullen and uncooperative actually we'd, sort of, he'd, we'd had quite a long relationship with him and been a very difficult young, young guy and for some reason he just came up while we were sitting on the road and he came in and he got a water pack and he put out this wood pile if he hadn't done that the whole building would have gone and which was amazing to us that he just thought of doing that and so our, our buildings had been saved um, pretty much from this fire and what was bizarre then we went into a freeze it went, went, the wind died and then it went into a freeze and all the pipes froze up and the water went cold and the electricity went out for two weeks so it went into the opposite element and everything was black totally black and uh, it was about four days after the wind had crashed Kitty Sarah's hut and we were cleaning up and we'd been walking in and out of this wooden hut because that was the kitchen, that was everything kitchen and place where we would eat and, and um, get the mops and the brushes just cleaning up and one day uh, one of the retreatants stepped outside the hut and there was this little picture of Kuan Yin that had been lost the four days earlier in the, in, in the one that I put in the drawer just sitting there in front of the hut, face up, just looking at us. And uh, we'd stepped in and out of that hut hundreds of times. The fire had burnt right up to the edge of it. And it was totally intact. And so uh, <laughs> it, was, it was an interesting moment. It really was an interesting moment. And this is sort of this thought was, well, maybe these mantras do work. <laughs> maybe they do help. And even the fire ranger, who was a pretty sceptical man, came and had a look at our buildings and the way the fire had moved, and he just said, you know, he said, I can't understand it. He said, there must have been a miracle here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.